Hello, and welcome to the Conversations with Data podcast, where we bring you the most interesting discussions around data journalism. I'm your host, Tara Kelly, and our latest episode features Ben Jones, the CEO and co-founder of Data Literacy, a company whose mission is to teach you the language of data. He talks to us about the great data literacy gap and how data journalism can help us close it. Ben Jones has spoken at numerous data journalism conferences around the world and has authored several books on data visualization, including Learning to See Data, Data Literacy Fundamentals, Avoiding Data Pitfalls, and Communicating Data with Tableau. This podcast is an edited version from a live recording for datajournalism.com's first live Discord chat held on the 10th of June, 2021. In this podcast, he spoke to us about the importance of showing uncertainty in data, how to avoid chart design pitfalls, along with what data journalists have inspired him over the years. Let's take a listen to our conversation with Ben Jones now. Ben Jones, welcome to Conversations with Data. Hi, Tara. Thanks a lot for having me. It's great to be here and joining you in this first session on Discord. Uh, you know, my teenagers are very excited that I'm on Discord now, so that's one thing. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, before we begin, I think it would be useful to sort of start with, you know, what the term data literacy actually means. Right. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, it's a term, and I think maybe different people understand it in different ways. Um, you know, one of the textbook definitions you can find online is that data literacy is the, the ability to read, understand, create, and communicate data as information. And I like that uh, definition quite a lot because it covers a lot of ground and there's a lot there. Um, but I also really like a definition that I found in one of the early research papers on this topic out of the information sciences. And it was by a couple of researchers, Javier Calzada Prado and Miguel Angel Marzal. And, you know, they define it a little differently. They uh, are looking at it from the point of view of someone trying to understand how information is collected and stored and communicated. Uh, and they say that data literacy can be defined as the component of information literacy that enables individuals to access, interpret, critically assess, manage, handle, and ethically use data. So that's a great uh, definition of, you know, this was a paper written back in uh, 2013, I believe. So that was helpful for me as I began to, you know, look to launch this business and try to understand how I could help other people effectively speak the language of data because it, you know, it encompasses quite a wide range of, of knowledge and skills. Marvelous. Now, talk us through your career. You know, what has been the intersection with yourself in the data journalism world? Yeah, um, that's a great question. You know, I started in engineering back in the late 90s at, at UCLA in the Los Angeles area where I grew up. And, and so, you know, I have a degree in mechanical engineering and then I spent the early years of my career designing products for medical devices, for automotive. And then uh, gradually kind of in a high volume production setting started to use statistics and data visualization more and more to the point where I really, you know, saw that it was a very powerful medium to both learn about the world as well as to communicate that to others. And so I transitioned, you know, I started to actually write a blog uh, called dataremixed.com. 
And that allowed me to begin getting connected with others that were excited and passionate about data visualization, including many data journalists who I greatly admired. Um, you know, I think the big uh, kind of connection happened when I was asked to move uh, up to Seattle to where I live now to lead the Tableau Public effort, which is a free offering for anyone that wants to tell interactive data stories on the web. Of course, a huge contingent of those users were uh, at news organizations all around the world. And so that led me to many different conferences that you listed in the introduction. And I started to travel, uh, present, train, and work with journalists who were preparing interactive graphics about everything from elections to the Olympics to everything in between. And uh, that really led me to, you know, learn a lot from them and to uh, hopefully contribute in, in a small way to what they were trying to do. Um, but, uh, you know, that was to me that, uh, that moment where I started to understand that, you know, there is this opportunity outside of business really to communicate with a broad audience to help them understand what is happening in the world around them. And that's such an important endeavor. And I'm just curious, like maybe you could talk a little bit more about how you've been inspired by some of those great data journalists out there. Because I think we're yeah. often, you know, like the data science world, data journalists go there for inspiration, but it's not, we don't often hear the other side of the coin, really. I was inspired by so many data journalists. You know, I think of a handful that come to mind. Um, you know, the team down in Buenos Aires that runs the La Nacion data blog. This is Momi Peralta, Gabby Bure, and others. So this team is just a real um, inspirational team. You know, they started off with just a small number of individuals who were diving into data for the first time. You know, not unlike the Guardian's data blog that was uh, led by Simon Rogers a good decade ago, or a little more than that, I think. But they were under a lot of pressure. You know, they were uncovering um, corruption in the political climate there in Argentina. And they were, you know, finding things that were embarrassing for, for politicians. And, um, you know, they were therefore under a lot of pressure. There was even examples where the government was one of their financial sponsors and they were pulling ads, if I recall correctly, from the stories they told me. But they were very dedicated. You know, they would get teams of people. So they would make requests of the government for data and they would deliver them in these boxes of paper, you know, and they would gather as many people as they could. And they would run these kind of contests uh, over the weekend and, you know, sometimes over many weeks to take these boxes of papers and try to digitize them sometimes by hand. And they would run little contests where they would, you know, see who could produce the most and who could catch the most typos or errors. I mean, it's just a very time consuming process and they were devoted to it and they just went after it, you know, and they were publishing these um, really important articles that were, uh, again, exposing some corruption and, uh, you know, at great risk to themselves sometimes. So, I mean, that's, if that's not inspirational, you know, I don't know what is. Uh, another couple people come to mind. So uh, Sarah Riley was at the New York Daily News, and I had a chance to train her at, um, at a NICAR event. I believe it was in Louisville, which would have been, I think, back in 2013. And she was really just kind of chartered with kind of scoping out the New York Daily News' foray into data journalism, let's say, way back then. And so they kind of went on hold for a while, and then we wondered what happened, you know, and they 
announced a, a number of layoffs. And then after that, uh, Sarah was able to come back and um, get started. So there was a bit of a hiatus there. But what was so powerful about her story is that, you know, when um, Eric Garner was tragically killed in Staten Island in 2014, she was just getting started. And so she spent night after night after night, you know, uh, locked in a room, getting data about the uh, the New York Police Department, specifically their broken windows policy, you know, that it was uh, in some ways um, sort of unevenly distributed from a racial point of view. And she started those as her some of her uh, preliminary data journalism articles that uh, went on to win some awards. But, you know, again, this was a scenario where she had to kind of work around the clock in order to get that story out. Uh, and again, just the devotion and the de dedication involved there. Absolutely. Uh, now, 2020 was the year, you know, the world and people in all parts of society were really interacting with data in a way that they had never before, thanks to, you know, obviously COVID-19 and the pandemic. How do you think journalists should approach audiences that have a variety of skill sets and, and understanding of when it comes to data literacy. So what should journalists have in mind when they're, they're designing and writing those stories? Yeah, so when we talk about presenting data to an audience, you know, it, it helps if you understand the audience, but the, obviously the major challenge with data journalism is that can be a very broad audience. Um, it could be people all across the political spectrum of different socioeconomic statuses and educational backgrounds. And so that's a massive challenge. I don't think it's easy to just um, overcome that challenge with a couple simple, tiny tips. I do think, though, it's helpful to try to communicate as clearly as possible. And part of that is understanding the encodings, right? So think of it like this. You're creating a chart or a map or a dashboard of some kind for your audience. You're creating a code and you're asking them to decode it. And you want to make sure the code is easily decodable. Um, or if it does require some interesting type of a, an approach on the part of the interpreter or the reader of that chart, then you want to embed the instructions somehow in a, in a obvious way. Um, so yeah, I would say default to something that you are fairly certain they'll be able to understand. This would be simple chart types that they're going to encounter in their daily life. And when you deviate from that, and I do believe sometimes you need to, uh, and I think we see some amazing examples of data journalism where they did, you know, for example, I'm thinking of Hannah Fairfield at the New York Times showing the change in gas prices, I believe it was, or maybe it was oil prices, using what's called a connected scatter plot, where you're showing change over time, not by the traditional or I would say, you know, conventional approach of putting time on the horizontal or x-axis and showing it going from left to right, but instead you're connecting dots on a scatter plot and the dots themselves are different years. And if you want to know what I mean, you can just Google Hannah Fairfield connected scatter plot. And I think you'll see it in, in Google image searches. But I don't claim to have um, solved that riddle. I think it's a challenge. It's going to be, you know, I think of, for example, last year, uh, as you mentioned, you know, with COVID data, I mean, this is a disease. This is a virus that spreads. Well, you know, that's that can be exponential, as we all uh, saw. And, and so one way to show exponential time series is through log charts, right, where the x-axis is a logarithmic scale as opposed to a linear scale. 
And so that's what, uh, you know, I was amazing experts in the field like John Burns and Murdoch, that's exactly what they did. But we also know from research that people are challenged to read that and, and answer basic questions about that. So they went so far as to make a video to explain, you know, what they were doing and why and how to make use of it. Now, uh, and I mentioned this in the blog post that, uh, that you published uh, for me. Uh, I think of others like Max Roser's team at Our World and Data that allows you to toggle right between the log and the, and the linear version of that same chart. Those techniques, I think, and those affordances can help readers figure it out and solve this little puzzle that you're presenting to them. Absolutely. Now, speaking of some tidy tips, I know you came up with a list of 16 tips on reading charts. Maybe you could just summarize for the, the those yeah. for us. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So the inspiration behind that checklist is actually an American visual information specialist who worked for the U.S. federal uh, government for many decades, starting in the 1920s. Her name is Mary Eleanor Spear. One of the books is called Charting Statistics. She wrote that in 1952, Practical Charting Techniques in 1969. And so one of the quotes in Practical Charting Techniques is, uh, she says, learn to see details. There's quite a difference between simply looking at a chart and seeing it. Looking is your first visual impression, while seeing involves the studying of distinct parts of the visual. And that really is kind of the inspirational quote for that entire book and course. That was the goal, right? To say, well, okay, how can we then provide a list of things that people can look to in order to see beyond that first impression? So there are things on there that maybe, you know, people would overlook like, well, what do the axes show? Uh, where do they start and stop? You know, um, is there a line chart that shows change over time? Where does it begin and end? Uh, just starting with those maxes and min points, you know, um, also, value direction. So many times people assume that up is good. I think that's maybe a, an assumption we make without thinking about it. But is it true? You know, well, if we're talking about crime rates, then up is not good. And so really orienting the reader to say, okay, which direction do you want this data to go? Is it a bar? Do you want, is it good for the bar to be longer or shorter? Is it a line? Do you want to see that line go up or down? And we've seen examples where perhaps journalists have um, inverted axes in ways that have either made that question uh, more intuitive or less intuitive. Similarly, as I mentioned earlier, time direction, um, if a chart shows change over time, well, you know, which direction is increasing time or forward, going forward from yesterday to today to tomorrow? Is it left to right? It probably is, but it might not be. Uh, that, by the way, can be um, culturally dependent as to what people might assume there. It turns out it's based on the language they learned to write in. Does it go from left to right or right to left? I learned that from a book by Barbara Tversky called Mind in Motion. So that's an interesting uh, dilemma for journalists. Well, if I'm showing time, you know, maybe different people will think of that differently. Um, I think it's generally safe if you're presenting to a global audience, or certainly if you think that the high percentage of the audience will be um, uh, in the Western world, then you know, left to right is probably the safe default. Uh, but if, for example, I saw a chart where it showed a change in Asian American hate crimes here in Seattle, where I live. And you know, your first gut uh, feeling when you look at that chart is, that, oh, great, it's going down. But then you realize that 2020 is all the way to the left, and 2016 and 15, those are on the right. 
And so actually the line, the time series is increasing, but that wasn't many people's initial reaction. And if you just glanced at it and moved on, you may have gotten the exact opposite impression about what's happening. So those are some of the things we provide in a checklist and because we're asking those who are intent on interpreting a chart to stop for a minute and look at some of these different uh, ways in which the data has been encoded in visual form for them. And you know, are they paying attention and are they giving it enough time to properly decode it? And that's challenging because you know that they're scrolling so fast, you know? Um, and so we're, we're hoping that this inspires people to pay a little closer attention to what they're looking at in charts, as opposed to just scrolling like it's an Instagram feed where, you know, you spend 0.5 seconds on it and then you're on to the next one. Well, if you do that with data, it turns out you might actually walk away with a complete wrong impression. And so we were asking people to and trying to empower them to stop and look a little more closely and carefully as, uh, as Mary Eleanor Spear uh, encouraged us to do back in the, uh, the 1960s. That was very interesting what we were what you were talking about in terms of you know chart reading and audiences and what to look out for culturally but i just wonder if you could talk a little bit about the pitfalls you know you've encountered sure well i think a lot of times we think about and talk about the chart type that seems to be what gets the most attention maybe because it's the visual part it's what we see and the first thing we interact with but there was a time where as i was interacting with journalists and conferences, as well as some of my students at the University of Washington, it occurred to me that whether it was a pie chart or a bar chart, um, you know, if someone had made a mistake early on in the process, let's say getting the calculations wrong, or even maybe just making the wrong assumptions about where, how the data was collected and what it meant, um, that, you know, I could make a perfectly clear chart as we've been talking about most of the session, but I still might really mislead someone if, one of those steps in the workflow before the chart creation step involved some kind of a mistake. And so I think that there are so many, I wrote a book, Avoiding Data Pitfalls, to try to at least collect and share examples that I've seen that I, you know, mistakes that I've made along the way. So there's seven pitfalls. And then at the very end, I realized that I'd fallen into one while writing the book itself. So there turns out to be an eighth pitfall. But uh, for, you know, for example, the first one is about how we think about data. So it's called epistemic errors, epistemology being the branch of philosophy that deals with knowledge and you know what do we know versus what do we believe. So a good example of that is with COVID data, it didn't take us long to realize that the case counts weren't exactly a perfect match to reality. Um, you know, it was probably in, in April or even late March, when uh, journalists like John Byrne Murdoch at the Financial Times started to talk about it as confirmed cases, not cases. And that's a great example where, you know, there's a gap between data and reality. When we saw that massive outbreak in India, tragically last month, we know that, uh, you know, there's a, a quite a large difference between those official numbers and what was actually happening in reality. And so, you know, even that is such an important uh, step to think about and, and a pitfall people fall into when they don't realize that there is always a gap between data and reality. Um, you know, those examples aren't always so grave and serious. Sometimes they can just be maybe not that large of an impact. Like um, I'm thinking about a bridge here in Seattle that bicycles cross 
called the it's called the Fremont Bridge. It's actually not far from the Tableau offices where I would spend many years and cross that bridge by foot as I got from my car to the office. And there's bridge counters and you can download the data. Uh, but those are just essentially, you know, it's an inductive loop. It's trying to count the bicycles. It doesn't do it perfectly. I never forget the time I downloaded the data and I was showing it to a group at a luncheon. I didn't really have a lot of time to prepare for the presentation I was doing. So we sort of looked at the data for the first time together. And there's this pretty massive spike, you know, and we were asking ourselves in the group, well, you know, what did that spike come from? And people thought maybe it was a race or maybe it was, you know, bike to work day or people had all these theories. But all of the theories and my own as well involved the assumption that that spike actually related to more bicycles crossing the bridge. And it seemed like a reasonable I mean, it, it, it wasn't even, we weren't even aware that we were making that assumption. It was just our frame of reference. It's what we were thinking. And nobody knew. So we moved on with the presentation. But 20 minutes later. This gentleman in the back of the room was kind of wave, waving his phone in the air. And he said, I found out. I found out what it is. And I said, oh, great. You know, could you, could you let us know? What was that big spike that day? It was in April uh, in 2012. And he said, oh, well, it turns out the bike uh, counters malfunctioned on that day. And, um, you know, they were counting the bicycles uh, kind of in a, in a, a flawed way. I guess the Department of Transportation um, personnel replaced the batteries and then, you know, it went back to normal. So they weren't really sure what happened. But that was found out because he, you know, there was a bike blogger who was interacting and emailing back and forth with a Department of Transportation worker. And again, it was just another you know, that was really where the, the gap between data reality and that pitfall really hit me as such a common one. Uh, because you know, you know, no, no one in the entire room thought to question the, the accuracy of the counter. It wasn't even in our minds, and so I think that that's a, a powerful one, um, and it's really important in journalism too, because you're trying to say, well, you're trying to say something about the world. Well, you're using data as a lens to do that, but it's not a perfect lens. Um, and then we go on from there. You know, there's other pitfalls like just processing dirty data or creating calculations, dealing with um, nulls, missing values. So those are some of the things we talk about. And, you know, I think it takes care working with data, looking at it closely and carefully, trying to find some of these common glitches and nuances and quirks that might lead you to incorrect conclusions. So yeah, that's what we cover in the book. We also do dive into the, the chart types themselves. We came back, come back to that at the end. Um, and really talk about how charts can be misleading and confusing and how to get that right, uh, or at least our best, our best options and, and advice on how to do that. Um, so that's, uh, that's avoiding data pitfalls, you know, and I think it's important to recognize that, you know, we are going to continue to fall into data pitfalls for Bill in the big picture view in the early stages as a species of getting good at working with data or where the infant learning to crawl. Hopefully, many generations down the road, they'll look back and chuckle at how many errors and problems we, we uh, encountered. Uh, but if so, then I think we'll have done our job in moving, moving things forward, you know. But it does involve us um, being open to admitting that there were mistakes that were made along the way. And, um, you know, in correcting those, I think that helps people learn. Absolutely. Um, now, we have a question here from Queen Eye. She's written it in the general chat. Um, she's actually a, an engineering student, um, and she says, journalism has faced a lot of economic challenges in the digital world, and one way they've, they've approached this is through the attention economy and through clickbait. 
How do you see this impacting the data journalism space? Like you said, data journalism is reaching more people, but um, can it help increase literacy? Yeah, yeah, that, that's a risk, right? So if the charts and graphs only show one side of the story uh, or only one very biased angle to the story, um, then people might walk away with a very skewed view of the world. And, you know, unfortunately, I think what we've seen is that they're probably also much more likely to want to share that. And so, yeah, there is a profit motive there. And I think it's actually uh, runs counter to the best journalists I know who believe that journalism is a public good. And so they're trying to tell accurate stories, perhaps that uh, embrace uh, multiple views and that don't show a, an overly biased perspective. To me, readers who are highly data literate are more likely to see through that and understand that bias. At least that's my hope that if we can help raise data literacy levels across the board, that people will be more likely to recognize when someone might be misleading them or telling uh, an overly biased version of a story. I don't think that it's something we're going to just see go away. I, I do think though, the more balanced and uh, thoughtful approaches that we can see, well, those are examples of how to do it right. I think it's, it's a challenge that's um, connected to and, and not uh, in any way dissimilar from the broader human challenge of communicating. Uh, the charts are just one outworking of that overall communication challenge. Um, but uh, I don't think that there's an easy answer there. And I would really hope that we start to, um, as a society, learn to deal with uh, examples of data journalism that, um, that really uh, mistreat the numbers and uh, do a disservice to, to the public by presenting uh, facts that have been skewed beyond recognition. Now, um, I have our question here from Peachy. He says, quote, I wanted to know if Ben has some advice on how we can help people understand that data are inherently uncertain and bring them on board to the fact that data are a representation of reality, but not reality itself. Yeah. So, um, you know, there are ways, I think, to communicate uncertainty. You know, um, the chart that is, has crisp and clean lines and places and points and precise spots conveys a notion of a precision, but it's, it's possible to make them fuzzier. It's possible to add, you know, um, error bars or to blur the lines a little bit. Um, you know, there's been studies that show that sketch styles, uh, wavy lines can be perceived as less accurate or precise. And in a situation where the data is highly um, uncertain, that might be appropriate. It might be appropriate to use some design techniques to convey that, you know, to use error bars, to use ranges instead of exact points. To do that in a way that doesn't, though, um, you know, there's a technical way in the field of statistics to display uncertainty and with things like error bars. You know, oftentimes those can even seem more confusing or intimidating to a lay person who maybe isn't well versed in statistical methods. And so I think some journalists that I've seen out there are trying to find ways to uh, tra uh, translate those techniques into uh, ways that a reader might not need that technical education in order to be able to understand. 
But I do think it's a big challenge, right? I mean, one challenge is understanding what uncertainty is even involved in the first place. You know, so for example, when we learn that there is a certain number of confirmed cases from the in the official records in India, um, you know, there are organizations out there like IHME here at the University of Washington that try to estimate what the actual uh, number of cases could be, and those are estimates. They're based on models. You know, so maybe you show a high or a low. Maybe you show a range. Um, here is what the official figures are. Here is what some experts are modeling could be the case. And so maybe can I kind of help them see the breadth of that range of figures? So I, I think that it's a challenge. How can we communicate uncertainty in a way that is um, clear to people? I'm thinking, for example, of the work of Jessica Hallman is one. She's a professor at Northwestern, and uh, she has been uh, focusing on data that calls out uncertainty, right, through visualization. How do you really bring clarity to that? It's an open question in the research, and that tells me it's an important one, and they're trying to figure out techniques to get it right. Another person is Matthew Kay, and he's an assistant professor also at Northwestern. Um, and he looks into InfoViz, specifically uncertainty viz. The organization you run, you know, you do a lot yeah. on training. And um, I'm just curious, is any of that designed for journalists? And do you think that there is merit in journalists taking more broad data science courses to build their learning and then try and apply that? Or, I mean, should it be catered to the journalist? Or what do you think as someone who does yeah. a lot of training on this? Sure. So we don't right now have courses specifically designed for data journalism, but think I designed them right after I left Tableau. So um, because of that, there are many examples peppered throughout that are, um, I would say, journalism style examples. Um, and so we find that that's actually interesting for people in business. They like that because it's data about their world instead of about a fake store or something, you know, it's not even a real company. It's just fabricated data and you're learning the techniques and the tools, but you're really sort of getting bored about the data itself. So we don't do that. We talk about deforestation, talk about, you know, and they visualize that. So those are examples. And I think that that crosses over well into the journalism world. So probably our courses for, are going to be more interesting to someone in data journalism probably just because of the fact that I've been so influenced by it. Um, the second part of your question, should data journalists or those who want to learn that discipline seek out training that's specific to that field? I think the answer is yes. I think that the best learning you're going to get is from individuals like, as I mentioned, Churl Phillips at Stanford, Christian McDonald at University of Te uh, Texas, UT down there in Austin. You know, those are individuals that aren't just teaching you the techniques and the tools, they're also teaching you the context and the challenges and the uh, cultural uh, you know, newsroom kinds of, of um, realities. I had a chance to visit uh, University of Missouri down there in, in, uh, in Columbia. And, uh, you know, same thing there. They have a fabulous data journalism program. So I still think, you know, you're probably going to get a lot of value out of uh, data journalism at the university level, because that's where a lot of those really senior and experienced journalists go to learn. But there's also probably some value in just learning the tools through the, the training 
that you're going to find online. It's just going to be up to you to translate what you're going to learn, which is about you know, something that isn't really applicable to the news cycle, let's say. And you're going to say to yourself, well, okay, how can I translate this? So I wouldn't say don't take data science or you know, data analytics courses that aren't geared toward journalists. I think that you probably actually find probably some better tool-based training over on in, in that um, world. But I do think, though, it's helpful to then go beyond and look at resources that you know, organizations like yours are providing um, and, um, and boot camps or hacks and hackers and those kinds of places where you are getting a chance to talk to individuals who are applying those tools in the newsroom. So there's probably no better way than to you know, have, have sort of apprentice-style mentorships with people in the field. And, and there are so many very generous uh, individuals in data journalism who are happy, uh, at least in, in my experience, to share their knowledge. Absolutely. I think uh, you make a lot of excellent points there. And I just wonder if we could end on sort of what's next for data literacy and your work. Are there any new books yeah. coming out or new training? Yeah, there are uh, a couple more courses coming out, hopefully before the end of the year. So one is called uh, Working Effectively with Data, and it's going to be uh, paired with a book that I'm writing right now called uh, Read, Write, Think Data. And it's really about a process, you know, thinking about working with raw data as a process. And what are the steps in that process? What do I need to think about? Now, I think once we define it as a process, hopefully as we become more fluent in that, in that process, it the trappings and the scaffolding can fade away. But at the beginning, for a lot of people, they need to be very deliberate and intentional about learning all the steps. What about preparing data? What about combining different data sources together? What about restructuring or pivoting it? What about actually visualizing it? Um, what about finding if there's statistical significance? How do I structure it and communicate it so someone else will understand? Those are the sorts of questions we're trying to help people answer and get good at answering. Um, in that, that next course. There's going to be a, a next course about, about really the, the presentation piece, you know, data storytelling, you may want to call it. Um, and that's actually going to borrow heavily from the world of data journalism because I think they do a much better job than people in business of clearly and effectively communicating insights to be found in charts and maps. So um, that's going to be the next course that comes out. No title yet on that, but these are all levels, you know, in our data literacy series. So right now we're on um, the third course, um, and then uh, the fourth one will come after that before the end of the year. That's what's next for us. We're, uh, we're, we're hard at work over here. Marvelous. Well, thank you so much, Ben Jones from Data Literacy for joining us today on Conversations with Data. Yeah, thank you for having me. And it was a real honor to, especially knowing this is, our first foray into Discord. I think it went well. A big thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in today. Want to hear more interesting discussions on data journalism? You can subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify, Google, and Apple Podcasts. I've been your host, Tara Kelly, and that's all for now. See you next time.